Chapter Twenty Nine of One of My Sons by Anna Catherine Green. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty Nine: The Quiet Hour. I would rather have spared the pain of that moment. Mr. Grice had virtually promised that I should not be present at Mr. Gillespie's arrest, but I presume he forgot not only his promise but my very existence in the unexpected interest of this extraordinary situation. Mr. Gillespie, who at another time might have succumbed to the emotion of seeing himself singled out from his brothers, on the charge which had hitherto involved them all, was already in a state of too much agitation to make much demonstration over this fresh humiliation. Nevertheless, it became evident, from the droop of his arms and the general air of discouragement which crept into his whole bearing, that the iron had entered his soul, and the climax of his many woes had been reached. I hoped for other results when I entered upon my long and painful story, he remarked. Certainly you have found me able to account for much that has seemed anomalous in my relations to my father, and the attitude I have been compelled to preserve towards society. I am surprised that any one should continue to regard me as having had anything to do with my father's unhappy death. May I ask what special evidence you imagine yourselves to have against me? I may be able to refute it with a word. This was more than Mr. Grice could grant, and he said so, though with less imperturbability of manner than usual. I am under orders to bring you into the presence of the district attorney, he explained, who will use his own discretion in the matter of having you detained. Will you accompany me quietly, leaving the care of your wife to Mr. Uthwaite, who, I am sure, will follow your wishes in the choice of such assistance as he may think necessary to employ. The look he received in return was eloquent in its appeal, but Mr. Grice knew no relenting where his duty was concerned, and recognizing this, Mr. Gillespie took a fresh resolve and boldly said, You have discovered that I carried a bottle of prussic acid into my father's house the day before he died. Shall I tell you where I procured it? From the hand of her who lies here. I found it tied about her neck, when after months of fruitless search I was led to investigate Mother Mary's lodging house. She was asleep when I discovered it, asleep in a way I always found it impossible to break, and the shock of finding her in quiet possession of what I instinctively knew to be poison maddened me to such an extent that I tore the file away from her and put in its place a roll of banknotes. These were probably stolen from her, as no proof remains of her having used them, but the bottle I carried away, having impulsively thrust it into my trousers pocket at the first intimation I received of a raid being made upon the place by the police. The explanation was so natural, and the manner in which it was made so convincing, that the detective's look and mine crossed, and I became assured that he, as well as myself, was beginning to give credence to this man. I can give no information of the use which was made of this drug after its introduction into my father's home, nor can I designate the hand which took it from my bureau, where I placed it on emptying my pockets. My connection with it ended at the moment I speak of. I did not even think of it again till I came in from the meeting where I had vainly sought distraction, 
and found my father lying low and heard the cry of poison raised in the house. This would have been a welcome explanation at the time, commented Mr. Grice. Your delay has compromised you. So be it, was the short but proud reply which came from this singular man. When you reflect that by the time I was able to satisfy myself that this bottle was missing from the place where I had left it, any attempt to exonerate myself would have been a virtual accusation of one of my two brothers. You will realize why I hesitated to speak then, and only bring myself to speak now under the compelling force of an interest greater than family pride or affection. In my desire to share the last offices which can be paid to my wife, I possibly show myself, for the second time, a coward. Did he? Mr. Grice did not seem to think so. The forehead of this aged detective was clearing fast, and he actually looked younger by ten years than when he entered this house. Yet his exactions remained the same, and Mr. Gillespie prepared to accommodate himself to them. Meanwhile the incessant hammering of the rain on the roof had become less noticeable, and the drip-drip on the sill without less wearily persistent. There seemed, too, a diminution in the turbulence of the wind. The doors and windows did not rattle so loudly, and the worst noises in the yards below had ceased. Anxious to see if the storm was abating, I raised the window and looked out. Rushing clouds with great torn edges met my eyes, and below, a chaos of towering walls surrounding an abyss in which the imagination could picture nothing save a collection of foul yards and reeking alleys. Recoiling from a prospect which the condition of my mind and heart made more than usually gloomy, I turned back from the possible tragedies hidden behind those great walls to the actual one in which I had myself been forced to take so ungracious a part. Mr. Gillespie was waiting to speak to me. I am allowed to give you the names of such people as can best assist you in the removal of my wife, he remarked. Here they are, together with the address in New Jersey where I wish her ultimately carried. Mr. Grice will give you what further information you need. He placed a paper in my hand with a word of quiet thanks, to which I responded in the manner I felt would be most pleasing to hope. Then he cast a glance at the detective. I have promised Mr. Gillespie the privilege of passing a moment in this room unseen and alone, observed that official, stepping towards the door. I bowed and withdrew shutting Mr. Gillespie in and ourselves out. Instantly all the noises in the house crowded clamorously to our ears. Laughter, singing, brawling, the screaming of children and the scolding of their distracted mothers made a sort of pandemonium which little harmonized with the mood induced by the pathetic story we had just heard. But it was not for us to be particular at such a moment, and I was glad that I had given no sign of my inward disturbance, when Mr. Grice suddenly remarked, I am getting old. His alert eye and attentive ear turned towards the room we had just left did not seem to indicate it. I find that such scenes make a deeper impression upon me than formerly. I no longer dwell on the skill it takes to bring them about but rather muse upon the mistakes and woes of poor humanity which make them possible. 
I wished to ask him what he thought of Mr. Gillespie's prospects, but he gave me no encouragement to do so, and we remained silent till the door reopened and Mr. Gillespie came out. I am ready now, he quietly informed us. Mr. Uthwaite, I can trust you, and if hope— He stopped and looked the entreaty he dared not utter. I will tell her the whole story just as it has fallen from your lips. You wish me to? He signified his assent, but still looked wistful. When she has heard the true cause of the division which has taken place between you and other members of your family, she will act as her own kind heart will prompt her, I added. He would have pressed my hand, but remembering his position as a prisoner, refrained. Let us go, he now said, in natural recoil from the noises which just then burst in renewed outcry from every quarter of the house. Mr. Grice gave a faint whistle. It was answered in the same guarded manner from below, at which the old detective turned to me with a few final directions, after which, with a promise to leave me well guarded, he made a gesture which Mr. Gillespie could not fail to understand. They began to descend. When Mr. Gillespie was halfway down, he gave one backward look at the door, swaying between him and what he had loved best on earth. Then he passed on, and I was left standing on that dingy landing alone. There was some clamor, and no little jeering in the rooms below, as the detectives passed through them with their well-dressed prisoner. But these tokens of class animosity speedily weakened to a sullen growl, amidst which I thought I heard the rattling of departing wheels. With a heart as heavy as the silence which now filled the house, I turned and went back into that room. It was filled with moonlight. The candle from which the winding sheet had long ago melted and run upon the table had flickered out, but its fitful flame was not missed. The clouds, which had seemed so impenetrable a short time before, had thinned out and parted till they flecked, rather than covered, the white disk of the moon, now revealed for the first time in days. That storm and that clearing have never left my memory. As the last lingering shred of cloud drifted away, leaving the face of the moon quite clear, I found courage to look once more towards the bed. There was a change there. She lay, not as before, with her features quite concealed, but with her face exposed, save where the loose curls had forced their way across her cheeks and forehead. The coverlet, drawn close under her chin, hung smooth and decent to the floor, and across it lay stretched one white arm, upon the hand of which shone the wedding ring which Leighton Gillespie had taken from her neck and placed there. End of chapter 29